The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. Being cut in half by a magician's saw and living to tell the tale. My guest today on the Stratford Slice. My guest today is Leslie Walker Fitzpatrick, and in doing the the research for for this podcast, uh, there is so much of your story. It's hard to know where to start, Leslie. But what jumped out at me was your early career working as Doug Henning's magician's assistant, and among the things that you had to endure was being cut in half by a saw. And here you are. You're you're am. you're not uh, in two pieces. No, there's magic in this universe. That's for sure. As my brother would have told us, there is magic in this universe. So tell me about your magical career. How you uh, encountered Doug and what you? He was one of the Canada's best known magicians in the day. And uh, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He was known worldwide. But in this day and age. It's. I'm surprised when people remember his name, younger people, and it's it's a shame because Canada should be very proud of him. But he did go to the states for a majority of his career, and uh, he um, was wonderful to work with. He was so his energy was so hot. It was like you could almost feel it coming off him. And he was filling theaters like the Royal Alex. Oh yeah, in no, I was yeah, in the, yeah. I was in his show at the Royal Alex with yeah. um, Jennifer Dale, and um, Ivan Reitman was the director. Um, David Cronenberg, the writer, and Howard Shore, the musical director, and Terry Jones of Perth County Conspiracy was the uh, singer. So it was a real who's who. Yeah. It was a, a, a wonderful show. Um, we were. Um, uh, a very uh, loving and group, and and it was about hopeful things. It was about uh, you know magic and life and love and uh, um, the people that did Godspell in New York came up to see the show. They'd heard about this, and um, so they decided to take it to Broadway. S- Stephen Schwartz writing the music for the new version, which was called the Magic Show at the Court Theatre and. On Broadway. And um, writing for magic is a very tricky thing because you have to be able to incorporate the needs of presenting magic within a plot. And uh, they had trouble writing the new version for Broadway. So unfortunately, um, what happened is (coughs) my part, which was the goddess of magic, a spiritual being, Doug's inner being made visible, became a cosmic whore and sang and was the director's wife. So I lost my part. Um, how did you get into magic? Was it through performing, or what was your first... How did you get connected with no, Doug? No, I, I wasn't a performer. I, um, when I, I went to the University of Rochester, where I started my photography interest, too. Um, I uh, needed to um, support myself at university, which I did through working um, 
with some of the art classes. And when I came, graduated and came to Toronto, I, I worked through um, the Ontario College of Art and uh, I became hooked up with international top models to, uh, to earn a living. And uh, <laughs> when, when some yappy kid came in and said he, uh, he wanted to audition models for a magic show, I was the only one they sent because I was a motorcycle riding um, bit of an edged <laughs> character. So, um, so I was sent to, uh, to um, um, meet Doug, and I had an appointment. But my brother, who was quadriplegic and mute, had a, a crisis, and I had to leave Toronto, take the bus down to St. Catharines, where my mother and he were living then, to help out with this situation. He had a life-and-death situation. So I called Doug, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't make it to this audition. You know, my quadriplegic brother is... Um, <laughs> just ha almost died and I have to be here and he told me later he was thinking oh the poor kid <laughs> right so he said well how about you know next week at a certain time so we we set a time that I would um he he held the auditions open for me so um he picked me up in Beauty, his old Volkswagen bus that had holes in it. We used to go to shows in this in the wintertime with the wind and the snow pouring in. Anyway, so he picked me up and he proceeded to, oh no, I, I met him on the subway. And if you believe in magic, when I was sitting there thinking, now do I really want this magic? A little energy spike went up my spine. So I knew there was something special there. And um, anyway, he, he took me around to all the other, um, to audition all the other women. He brought me with him. Like I was, so, so finally at the end of the day, I said, don't you want to audition me? <laughs> and uh, so he had me do some free form slow motion dance, which I had, you know, um, used to hold poses that, the art school for 20 minutes right so after that I was I was uh, I was on and uh, became his partner and we traveled through Ontario did various club dates and uh, um, for a good period of time until he did his um, at um, the Toronto Center for the Arts he did an, um, an evening to try and get backers to get money so I uh, did the backers show with him and we got the money from Howie Deverett who ran Le Strip on Young Street. He was one of the backers. So our first rehearsal hall was on the third floor above Le Strip. <laughs> and I was very shy in those days and I would um, kind of walk along Young Street and slip into the <laughs> You know, into the strip and coming out I would slip out and try and you know merge with the traffic right away so when I had been attacked by the lion in that rehearsal hall it was not an anonymous leaving from that building so tell me about all the things that a magician's assistant has to go through um, some of the with if you can uh, reveal some of the state secrets but well, I, um, I, you were sawed in half obviously I've been sawed in half I've been split in three I've had light bulbs pushed through my body, which uh, belonged to Orson Welles. That was a, an illusion that had Doug got that had belonged to Orson Welles. Um, I've been set on fire. I've been <clears throat> handcuffed, chained, tied in bags, locked in trunks. <laughs> yeah. 
So what's the illusion that fools the audience to think that it's, uh, are they distracted? What is uh, magic in its essence? Magic, and, and we've had magic, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years. I think after my experience in it, it's, it's so that we stretch our imagination. What we think of as day-to-day -day reality is is, you know, is very temporary. And I think it's to stretch our imaginations to open up to other possibilities on the planet and in the universe. We want to believe in magic. Well, there is magic. <laughs> there is magic. It's just, uh, it's a grace. It's not, in my mind, real magic is a grace. It's not a power. It's not, I, I have the power, I can blow you up. It's a grace. It's subtler. It's it's from beauty. It's from the life force. So you got training from one of the masters. You weren't a magician. You were a model. But you got to be inside the world of magic for yep. a number of, of years. What was that? Well, that I wasn't. Like? I wasn't like most, you know, young magicians hanging out in magic shops. In fact, Doug would not take me to magic shops. He wanted me to have the pure belief in magic. He didn't want it to be sullied by tricks. You don't say tricks to a lady magician. Right? Um, so uh, I didn't get involved in that aspect of um, magic, although I met many of the greats of the time. Um, I met Di Vernon and uh, uh, many other. Um, Jean Anderson, who invented the torn and restored newspaper. Um, Jim Robertson, who was a magic historian out from California, and Mars, of course, um, who, you know, it was wonderful to be able to share stories with, because secrecy is important, and I didn't even tell my quadriplegic mute brother any secrets. So, so are you still bound by that code of, he was... Of you, course I am. You were his co-conspirator, so you had to be brought into the tent, so to speak, to... Uh, help uh, him achieve his tricks, right? Well, see, don't say tricks. <laughs> Magic. Because Doug really believed, I, I don't know if you know of a book called The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. That was a very deep root in Doug's um, philosophy, his belief, his early philosophy and belief. And I think a lot of the ideas in there were roots um, to developing Spellbound, which was the show at the Royal Alex. Um, and... Uh, so, um, you know, uh, it, it also in, in this era, <laughs> uh, that beautiful, subtle magic is sort of gotten lost, I think, in our much more um, violent reality of the day. Let's go back before magic and before Rochester. You actually were born in Scotland, right? <laughs> I was. Tell me about your childhood, because I, 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 I remember hearing that you've lived all over the world. Well... I was born in Scotland, in Kilwinning, um, which is on the west coast of Scotland. My mother was raised in Salkots, Adras, and Stevenson. My, my great-grandfather was a painter, was an artist. He, um, he cycled to Glasgow once a week from Salkots to, to, take, to study um, art. Because when, when, they, when he told his parents, his Victorian parents, that he wanted to be a painter, they apprenticed him to a house painter. So. But he ended up going to art school. And when I was a very small child, he took me up into the third floor 
of his attic in this huge chest that had a secret drawer. Pulled out the secret drawer and showed me his drawings of nudes <laughs> from um, art school. Anyway, that was... Um, we went to um, Guyana next. What was your father doing he traveling was, like he that? He was um, a chemical engineer. So in Guyana, <clears> he, he looked after the chemistry of the sugar on the plantation. So I learned to walk on a freighter across the <laughs> crossing the Atlantic in a storm. I decided to stand up. So I think I've been, you know, rocking and rolling ever since. So, so all over the world, and then you ended up in Canada. Uh, in Canada, yeah. He... Um, my father's specialty was actually glass. He um, helped <clears throat> to develop safety glass, where windshields used to break in great pointed shards. Um, they broke them in, so they broke into little hexagonal pieces and didn't kill people like they used to. So, so he worked for um, a company called Duplate in Oshawa, then Windsor. Then he went to another glass company in Chicago, and then f with Ford in uh, Detroit. Um, and then they moved an Englishman <laughs> to run the Ford glass plant in Canada, which was just outside Niagara Falls. So it was a well-off upbringing. You didn't lack for anything. Would you say that, or a fairly uh, good, uh, comfortable life? No, I had. I was uh, secure, um, with good parents until <clears throat> the struggle of um, a quadriplegic brother being born. Then, then it was it became. A challenge. Your brother John, um, how old were you when he was born? I was about 12, and so I became um, like a second mother to him. I became the playmaker, um, and I, uh, we became very, very close, my brother and I. And um, I was um, part of him figuring out his way out of his silence uh, one New Year's Day. When I was a little hungover, he was all excited, all excited, because we uh, alphabetized all his records so that he, when he could indicate yes and no what, with body language, if you knew him, so that he could choose what he, music he wanted to listen to. So he got across to me that, that um, New Year's Day that there were clues in the record. I clues? Um, I couldn't quite figure that. Until I said, "Well, do you want to do you want to buy go buy a, a new music?" No, no. All the usual questions didn't work. Until it just it fell into my head, magic. His idea, it was like the super saturated solution, and and the that came in, and the whole picture fell in place. That he was going to use the words on all his records to write his poetry. So he would direct you through the alphabet to the letter than he wanted. Then you'd read off the artist till it got to the artist he wanted. Then you'd read off the albums. Then you'd read off the songs till it got to the song he wanted. And when it came, you'd play it. When it got to the word or the phrase he wanted, he would let you know. So all his poetry came from a word here, a phrase there, a word here, a phrase here. And he won um, honorable mention in the Commonwealth Poetry Competition. So he was completely trapped because of a condition. He had everything Cerebral else. Both, yeah. Yeah. He would die on the floor if we didn't help him. Yeah, No, he was completely vulnerable and helpless. So that's why I love the fact that you met Stephen Hawking. Yes, Stephen <laughs> he Hawking. He was brilliant, right? My brother was brilliant. He invented this um, unique way to yeah. write poetry. 
Well, Stephen Hawking sounds like he was better off in, in a way because Stephen was able to use a touchscreen or a, a computer keyboard to yeah. synthesize his voice because he wasn't able to speak, but he was able yeah. to move a mouse yeah. with his eye, uh, twitching his eye. Well, we were just working on that when um, we got to the point where... Uh, they kept trying to get him to use the switch a certain way, but th- we knew that the best way for him to use the switch was to, to push back. Move his body, yeah. And um, uh, f- for a long time, the professionals didn't want him to do that, but that was the best thing to work. Anyway, he, he died. Bef- we were working on the getting him the computer system when he died. Was that bef- um, prior to the era of Stephen Hawking? How, what year were we talking here? John died in 98, and right. computers were still fairly yeah. new. And uh, Jim Robertson <clears throat> um, from California, who was a, a computer expert at the time, surprised Johnny with an Apple computer. But it was too soon. It, it yeah. hadn't, the technology hadn't gotten to the point that John could use it. Well, with Stephen Hawking, uh, he was lucky enough that his condition was diminishing over time, and it wasn't really until Intel and the computer chip came about in the 2000s that he had to rely on it more and more. But uh, initially, he wasn't didn't need too much, but more in the last years of his life, it was all... Uh, he was confined and trapped, and it was really, it was amazing to see how he. Uh, this is why I'm interested in talking about your brother because I, I um, spent two uh, weekends with uh, Stephen Hawking. One, I went to talk to him or have a meeting with him over lunch at his kitchen table uh, the first time, and then the second time we went back with William Shatner and did an interview with Stephen Hawking. And Lucky it, you. And <laughs> well, it's, uh, for me, it was one of the most impressive people I've met in, in my life because. You don't know what to talk about when you meet someone like that because there's no back and forth. So it becomes uh, almost like a presentation to them. You're talking, you're in, you're making up in your head what the questions might be. And uh, at the end of our lunch, uh, he said, um, "Nice to meet you." Uh, look forward to... It was very simple phrases that he had already pre-programmed into his computer. And so it was just quite remarkable sitting across from this man who is this brilliant scientist and uh, gave me a whole new appreciation for that. The communication, I I used to always say to Johnny, it's not that much easier with words for people to communicate sometimes you know there's especially we see that now with the the rift in society and uh but with john i mean we i knew we knew each other so well that um you could read his mind almost yeah and and he you probably esp Uh, i mean it's it's a it's a grace it's not i can listen to your thoughts it's a grace it's uh I mean, there was a, a time when, you know, we'd be telling jokes, and if somebody was watching it, um, you wouldn't. I, I knew, John was responding to me. <laughs> you know, we were going back and forth. This joke was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we collapsed on the ground laughing. Well, he was already collapsed on the ground laughing, but but, but yeah, no, the communication was there without him using words. And his poetry and uh, his life were the inspiration for a documentary the CBC did on Man Alive. That's right. Uh, quite some time ago. It won the first um, Gemini uh, for a documentary. John Walker and Paul um, 
sorry, I just lost his last name. Um, and it won um, um, a Chris statuette uh, and another award in California. It almost was at the Oscars that year. They picked five and it was number six. You're listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. So what brought you to Stratford? I had a a a two-and-a-half-year, almost two-and-a-half-year-old son, and um, we were in a small house in Toronto, and... um, we being your, you and Richard, Richard Fitzpatrick, Richard your Fitzpatrick husband. Richard Fitzpatrick, yeah. husband, and I, who's an actor. And he thought, well, Stratford would be a great address for an actor. And we'd be able to afford a house with a backyard for our son. And I wanted my son to know trees, <laughs> to, to know nature. And so we moved here in um, 89. So. And it's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. So I put my roots down and I've, you know, tried the best I can to... Uh, to be a, a good citizen of Stratford. But you've also had a number of other interesting jobs. You worked for Air Canada for a time, I understand, as I a flight a, attendant? I was a flight attendant, yeah. I took a year off university, and I flew for Air Canada during that time. And what parts of the world did you see? Um, I went to London a lot, and um, Vancouver, down east, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, it was... L- I went. I decided to go back to university. <laughs> they offered me a full-time job. We were we were all hired on as temporary summer flight attendants, and uh, I was offered a full-time job. But I decided to go back and complete my degree in developmental psych. So you moved to Stratford some thirty thirty-three years. Three years ago, huh? and at what point, or have you always been an advocate? Like, what did you? What was your experience in the world that said, "Well, this is a great town. I want to get involved in preserving its uh, its charm and its integrity." So, what was that motivating factor for you hmm. in sort of getting involved? Because most people just sort of, "I'm going to live my life peace and quiet," but you you wanted to be involved. I guess, you know, I um, was used to sort of fighting for things I loved because we had to fight for my brother's life often with doctors and hospitals because his life was devalued um, so many times. So I guess that's kind of a, a, a root to it. When I love something, you know, you try to protect it. You try to take care of it. And uh, Stratford has such a history of people protecting it. Tom Patterson and uh, um, uh, uh, Tom Orr. Tom Orr. Yeah, the, r- the railway is almost saving went down the, the river. Saving yeah. the river. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so the the first step I took into that was when Walmart wanted to build a huge super center in Stratford. And I just really worried about our downtown. Um and I also did not care for the ethics of that particular corporation. I did a lot of research and found out a lot of things about it. So, And at that point, um, Dan Matheson was newly mayor, and he held a, um, a big uh, citizens' gathering about the issue at City Hall, which was really well attended. And I plucked up my courage for the first time to, 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 uh, to talk in public in Stratford on this issue. And I went on to be a citizen participant um, in the OMB 
hearing on um, Walmart. And we did beat Walmart, but they got us on a, a loophole and found a different location. So they did not build the huge super center that they wanted to on the me- Meadowland. They ended up on Ontario Street. Where was it going to go originally? It was going to go um, out past where... On the south side, um, coming into town. Past Canadian Tire. Yeah. yeah. So it was going to be a huge super center. But so, you know, it's, it's a smaller, and our downtown, you know, has still good. <laughs> so, and we have to keep protecting that because that's a really big part of the economic health of Stratford. Also on the topic of community activism, you were quite involved in a campaign to stop a major uh, glass factory in, in Stratford a couple of years ago. Tell us about that. Well, uh, and my father had been a glass expert, which was kind of uh, uh, strange for me, but it was a very different kind of glass, a much more polluting kind of plant. And it was just fascinating to see the whole city come together because there was such an awareness that this heavy polluting industry right at our southern gateway was going to change the the character of Stratford. And um, with a 328-foot smokestack that was going to be putting particulate matter and uh, sulfuric acid, you know, over our agricultural lands. And um, I and a number of other people stood um, on the steps of City Hall for these 37 days in the winter to to be part of trying to stop this. And the winds came came from the south. It would have been, uh, this pollution would have landed on our downtown. But it was wonderful because so many people in the town came together. Lorena McKinnett had a group um, looking at the democratic processes involved with this. Um, Sharon Collingwood uh, um, from Get Concerned Stratford organized uh, signs and uh, we had um, meetings even though it was COVID uh, we, we could get have a hundred people gather in the square behind and, and the vigil and uh, we were able to stop that um, we beat City Hall in Beijing and uh, to protect in, in the tradition of so many uh, that have protected Stratford in the past we were able to um, protect her from that um, kind of a wrong development. The project did not go ahead. What lessons are there to be learned for the future from that uh, experience? Well, for one thing, you know that so many citizens do care about the heritage and the, the character of our city. And and many other, um, the Wellington Water Watchers really were an important part of that. They're a, a great environmental group. And um, we gave uh, hope to lots of other um uh, groups that are fighting uh, wrong development. Uh, you know, the one that's coming up is the 413 that's going to go through our wetlands and our wildlands and our agricultural lands for what, a few minutes uh, traffic. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's battles. You know, we it's, the way we are on the planet now, we have to fight for everywhere, for every tree because it's come to that. that we're, it, we have our precious planet. We have to protect her. And we did that in Stratford by stopping this very polluting glass plant. As a community, we came together. 
Right. One thing you mentioned about saving different things is the saving of City Hall because there was a movement underfoot in the 1970s to replace it with a hotel and a revolving restaurant. That's right. And That's right. Uh, we now have the most picturesque City Halls in uh, anywhere. So. <laughs> we would have had a, what a, an ugly uh, modern hotel or something there instead. I mean, so Stratford has had a number of people over the years stand up to fight for her, to keep her character and... Uh, we did that, of course. Um, to um, th- there was a big move to tear down the Grand Trunk Railroad building, which could be an incredible. It could be the heart of our city again. I don't know if you've ever heard of a um, development in um, France called Luma Arles. It's in the city of Arles, which is a little bit bigger than our Stratford, but it's a an arts town. Um, it's where Vincent Van Gogh painted, and they took their um, their old railroad building and repair um, shops that are right downtown in Arles, and they have turned it into an international, incredible arts center. And uh, Maya Hoffman of, uh, I think it's La Roche Drugs or something, was behind it. Visionary, a real visionary. And to to um, with the purpose of... Um, Taking, looking at the best of contemporary intelligence to um, to help us go into the future. So I think our Grand Trunk could become, I think, the North American version of Luma Arl. It would be such a nice thing. Because Frank Gehry, was our, our Canadian architect, was part of the Luma Arl uh, development. And... Um, we have the arts um, here. It could be uh, an incredible, it could be a beating heart again for Stratford. So I'm very glad that we were able to um, stop it from being torn down. And um, I was on the Heritage Committee for a period of time. And um, Cynthia Venables and I fought to, um, to do the Heritage Report on the building. Um, some forces didn't want us to do that, but we did. And... Um, it came out in terms of the provincial guidelines. It fulfilled, more than fulfilled, all the requirements to be a heritage um, uh, building. In fact, it's it's heritage for Canada. It's heritage for Canada. Canada's built on the railroads, right? So, um, so I very uh, was very pleased that I was because of working on the heritage report. Uh, we got into the building, and I took three cameras with me. And they, lovely, it was a beautiful sunny day, and I, I did the series inside that building that were up at the Bruce Hotel for a, a long time. Yeah. Yes, photography has been a big part of what you've observed in Stratford. So that you're going back to your original talent and your original skill of photography. What do you see when you look through the lens in Stratford that you might not see in another community of its size? Well, I guess. Um, is there a magic of because, Stratford? Well, that, uh, well Strat- of course Stratford has magic. It has theater, the, theater, the, the magic yeah. of theater and, and the arts. And it's a confluence of, you know, of agriculture, the land, and the arts, and the service industries. It's, um, it's very unique that way. It's, we're an international center, and yet we're only, what, 32,000-something? Um, so there's a, a, a wonderful quality of life in terms of the size of the city. And so it should be protected. It should be protected for Canada because it's a jewel in Canada's cultural crown. So I'm very aware of that after living here for a long time. And uh, 
I put my um, energy when when necessary in to to protect. We're seeing recently that Stratford does not escape uh, the social ills that affect everywhere else. We have issues of of poverty, homelessness, uh, affordability of of housing, people who can't uh, afford to live here. What um, where does Stratford play in that whole role for the the vision of towns of our size, you know, across Canada? Well, in this era of predatory real estate, um, our future directions are being determined by out-of-town developers and not people who understand and know the character and the heritage of the towns. And downtown cores everywhere. You know, look at the troubles London has had um, with their downtown, you know, being decimated by malls and um, Stratford. Because of the unique characteristics, has kept on held on to our downtown. And people come all the time. I, I work downtown, and I, people come just for a day trip. They don't necessarily come to go to the theater, although many people do. Um, people from all over come because they just want to be in this kind of um, human, artistic downtown core. And um, so, yeah. But Stratford still has to have other elements of the economy. We have the auto industry. We have a lot of people who come here for, for jobs that aren't necessarily connected to the arts or the tourism sector? How do we ensure that we maintain uh, a community that is open and accessible to everyone? Well, I think, I think it is. I mean, people, not, even, not just theatergoers, come to want to be here. Um, I mean, we're more affordable than a lot of cities. Um, in terms of our future development, I think we have to be really careful how we, yes, build new homes, but what kind and where, um, and how affordable, not, not, um, not the kind of stacked townhouses that, that would probably end up being um, speculatory for Airbnbs, which is a real danger for Stratford, but um, truly affordable homes. Um, Again, we need to make sure we don't spill out onto agriculture, onto nature. But there are uh, areas of town that, that are appropriate for new housing developments. Infill. And, infill, yeah. Infill. And there are places that are not, um, like on the uh, Ontario Street between Queen Street and Tro Avenue is a controversy right now, which will be... Um, coming before the Ontario Land Tribunal um, the end of October, um, which an out-of-town developer wants to build, um, take over that block and build Mississauga-style townhouses there, right on off the, the aorta of going downtown to the heart of Stratford. And um, so there's many citizens fighting it. We've presented to city council several times, many, many citizens presented with clear reasonable arguments that were ignored by too many councillors. So that's why we have to go to the Ontario Land Tribunal. Um, there are three heritage-worthy buildings. You'll recognize the, the old um, Chinese restaurant. But behind that facade is the house that George McLaughlin, who was a furniture um, magnet in Stratford years ago, um, it could be restored. Uh, Robert Ritz came up with a win-win-win-win 
uh, development plan for that area that would that would give enough density, more than enough density of what Stratford is requiring in terms of future population, while keeping the heritage and the character of the town on that important um, road that, that leads right into our downtown. Yes, I was going to mention that because municipalities, especially places like Stratford that are prevented from expanding their, by their boundaries, are being encouraged by the province to explore higher density and infill development. So that's sort of what a lot of the arguments are being made. We need to have more density, more infill in Stratford. But we have lots of other areas that are that are brownfields that could fulfill that mission that doesn't have to be on that important um, roadway into our downtown. So how do you say to a developer, don't buy this land and buy this land? How? What kind of policies do you need to shape that kind of development? I don't. That's that's the age-old battle, is it? To um, for our our future, for our uh, our to protect our heritage. Um, there are things worth so much more than money on this planet, and. Um, so we need a, a city councils who understand that they have to protect the character and the, the quality of life for their citizens while um, encouraging the appropriate kind of development in the appropriate places. Do you see Stratford's future as being, some people are worried that it will become an exclusive enclave only for people who are fleeing the high prices of of Toronto. We've seen a lot of that in the real estate area now. Do you think we can protect our community for a wide range of people and interests? Well, I think a lot of the people that are attracted to live in Stratford are attracted to the, the quality of life. In fact, a number of the citizens, the new citizens who presented to council about the Queen Tro issue said, we came here you know, for, the, for the, the character of the city not to be in, you know, in Mississauga stacked townhouses. Uh, so a lot of the new citizens were, you know, are upset too about this potential development. But um, no, I, I mean, because our economy is based on uh, service and agriculture and, some, uh, and some industry, yeah. you will get um, lots of different uh, people from lots of different walks of life here, which makes it a much more diverse and rich city. Mm. But a lot of those people right now have to commute in from Kitchener and New Hamburg, other places like that. We don't have enough housing stock to accommodate simply everybody right now, and it's a bit of a challenge. I heard a rumor about some new development going out on the edge of town. I, I don't know any details, so I wouldn't, uh, but a, a lot. <laughs> so, I mean, there are areas in town that, that, that can accommodate um, new housing. Yeah. So tell me how you've um, sort of managed to get through the pandemic in the last couple of years. You've been doing a lot of photography, right? You've been taking lots of pictures. <laughs> well, just before the uh, pandemic was when uh, the Dominion House closed down, and I spent a a lot of time in that last week that the Dominion House was open. Now, the Dominion House, for those who don't know, is... Uh, 1865. Ho 1865 <laughs> hotel, tavern, very popular uh, bar and drinking hole right next to the railway station. I can't tell you how many people said, I met my wife here. In fact, I met all of my wives here. <laughs> you know, It was a, a very deep... Uh, important part of Stratford, and you know the railroad men from way you know hundred years ago would come and chat and talk about what was going on, and the railroad guys that I met when I was 
photographing there said, well, they probably talked about the same things we talked about. It was a, a wonderful thing, because I'm not a, a, a big bar girl, but I was made so welcome in that community when I spent a lot of time that, that last week that it was open photographing. I photographed at night, I photographed during the day, I photographed the outside. And then um, on the anniversary of it closing, I did a guerrilla art <laughs> exhibit. With a, on a, the fence. On the fence. I, 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 had hun I have hundreds of photographs from that last week of all the people. and I, I can't tell you how uh, warm an experience it was to, to be taken into the bosom of that, that uh, Dominion House community. And so I, I printed, I think there's, I don't know, there's hundreds. <laughs> and I uh, bought a little laminating machine, and I laminated them all, and I punched the holes, and I, I put ties in. Now, the garden ties, you have to be careful, because in the winter they will unswirl in the dark, in the cold. So I had to then use uh, paper wire things as well to reinforce them. And um, so, um, so a group of us, one... Um, Friday night, 10 o'clock at night, went out and, and put them all up on the fence. And they're three years later, they're, they're still, still there. there. They're yeah. still there. Well, I, I, I've asked a few people, I said, well, should I take them down? And, and I was given the answer by Scott McCowan, I would miss them. <laughs> so every, I check every so often there's a hole and I go out and or one comes off and it's flapping in the wind and I... Every time I go by, I check and look for holes, and I go out and repair them. So I don't know how long it's going to be up there. I don't know. I was thinking, well, maybe I should do an auction at some point of the patinaed photographs <laughs> that have been up on the fence. Some of them some of them have been there since the whole three years. Others have been replacements. But, you know, and, and find a worthy cause to... Um, to um, auction them off for. And are you turning your lens to anything else at the moment? Are you focused on any, any particular projects? Um, well, two of my photographs um, were just um, featured at the Female Eye Film Festival in Toronto. It's the 20th anniversary. And they like to have um, still photographs as well as the, uh, the films. And um, so I entered a five of my images that, that I call are um, the consciousness of nature. It's like, um, and um, two of them were chosen to be uh, at the Female Eye Film Festival, so I was given a pass to all... I went to see, like, six films a day for four days and meet all kinds of interesting women. All the films are directed by women. And um, so, yeah. Were these images abstract, or are they particular subjects that you could... Uh, well, I would care. call it the pixel painting... <laughs> a little bit of pixel painting, I, where um, I um, started before selfies. Um, the whole field of self-portraiture was a very legitimate part of art, and back in my twenties, well, my f my first photographic subject was my brother John, because I wanted to show the beautiful spirit of this brother that I knew when the world saw his crippled exterior. So that was my very first photographic project. And I also, during times of deep depression, trying to cope with my brother's disability and various other things in my life, um, I turned the camera on myself because I thought, well, it's better to be creative and look at what's going on rather than lying here. So... Um, 
so I have a, a body of work from my 20s. And um, so I sometimes use some of those images in other images. Like one of, I have one called River S, which is this beautiful shot of a small river behind my sister's house, actually, with uh, a bit of a self-portrait that's all blended in, and it's like the spirit of the river. So that kind of thing is one thing I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, photographing strawberries right now. It's strawberry season. Um, I, um, when I was in Toronto for the Female Eye Film Festival, I did some uh, street photography um, and entered a couple of those in uh, Lens Culture. I don't know whether they'll get any. Um, I, I, um, there was, um, I'm just trying to remember the name. I'm in a couple of books, um, photographic books, Who's Who in Visual Art um, from uh, Germany. Um, that was from a number of years ago. Um, I, I, I'm not limited to one kind of photography. I, I, I have a very roving eye. I, <laughs> I'm always looking. Yeah, I and always it, have my camera with me. And is your website... Uh, my website's out of date. Oh, photographically. You, right. There's a lot of information there about um, magic and I was a, an artist in the schools, so that kind of thing. And my some of my brother's poetry, some of my older poetry is there, but... <coughs> well, maybe we'll post some of the images on our podcast oh, website sure, and sure. just share some of them with you. Sure. Um, what was I just going to say? You were saying you always have your camera with you. Yeah, Everybody yeah. has a camera with them now. With the phone, but I know. Yeah, uh, that's true. And so uh, you know, I I've seen many changes in photography since I was twenty. You know, I started with the single lens reflex camera, uh, slides in black and white, and I went through the Polaroid era. I did a joint show with Dave Heath, who was my photographic mentor. He was um, professor of uh, photography at Ryerson for many many years, and uh, um, I went with him. To he finally he started as an orphan in Philadelphia, and it was a beautiful thing that when he was 85, the um, museum in Philadelphia honored him with a, a show, and so I I was there, and uh, it was a beautiful circle for his life. Uh, I was quite close to Dave. He was a mm. be beautiful. He's one of the masters of photography. Well, it's been great uh, to get you know you a bit better, and thanks for, for your time, Leslie. A very interesting, eclectic I've had uh, a, a life. a little eclectic life. <laughs> and here you are in Stratford. And I love it, and, uh, you know, um, we need to protect the heritage and character in this city because she's very special. Thank you. You've been listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com. And be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com.